It was all a dream. The Football Academy journey discusses and covers issues pertaining to mental health and well-being. If any of the issues discussed in this documentary have or are affecting you, please call the Samaritans day or night for free on 116123 or go to samaritans.org. This England team has a crop of very exciting players and Gareth Southgate knows that. This young England side have given us so much pleasure over the last four weeks. England's success at reaching the final of Euro 2020 is a ringing endorsement of the country's academy system. The players who've come through the system in recent years are viewed as possibly the most technically gifted crop of young players in the world. England's not making any headway. Now Calvin Phillips will try and make a run to split the lines and he's done well, he receives the ball and he turns inside, he slips it in, it's Sterling! And England are off and running! Calvin Phillips has made it! Raheem Sterling puts it away, his first goal! Sterling trying to ride the challenge, slips it in, it's Harry Kane! It is the perfect start for England! It's Rashford against Nietzsche to give England the lead. Rashford takes a couple of steps to his left-hand side, right-footed, sends the keeper the wrong way, and England have the lead three quarters of the way through the game. But what is the journey really like for young players coming through the academy system? And with only an estimated 1% of youth footballers making it to the top of the game, how can we make the pathway a more positive one for the thousands of young boys and girls who don't end up shining in the Premier League, the WSL and for their national teams? I want to find out about the highs and lows of the system by speaking with players, their families and their clubs about what it means to be an academy footballer in England. This is It Was All A Dream, the Football Academy journey. Liverpool's Andy Robertson is one of those players. There's a chance and in! And Robertson gets his goal from 12 yards out. The day I got released, it was hard. I went home, cried. I made sure I surrounded myself with the family. And then, obviously, next day you go back into school. So I felt a bit embarrassed having to tell my friend. You didn't want to tell them the bad news because, you know, you know what you're like. You're a 15-year-old boy and you don't want to show, you know, any weaknesses and you want to play for Celtic. White with a volley. Oh, <laughs> Ben White! has just cracked in his first goal of the season. On the way home from getting released, I had a little, little cry. Spoke to my mum for a bit and she said, like, do, do you want to continue? Um, obviously, because if it, if it doesn't make you happy, then there's no point doing it. That's Arsenal and England defender Ben White. And this is Aston Villa's Anita Asante. It's a fine block by Anita Asante. I just remember, like, you know, just thinking, oh, my God, like, I can't believe... I can't believe they want me to come back. And that's the point at which I was like buzzing and like couldn't wait to tell my family and my dad, especially being an Arsenal supporter. Here's Crystal Palace winger Eberichi Eze. Gliding past players as he loves to do. Eberichi Eze! He's a showman! When I got to Millwall, it was like, and they told me that news. People may think, oh, it's only Millwall. But at the time, there was nothing more sweet to my ears. I remember going to bed like, God, I'm not going to stop thanking you for this one. I also want to hear from parents of players in the system, such as Liverpool legend Jamie Carragher. It is a big commitment for any parents. Me and my wife wouldn't be, get, wouldn't be getting in the house till 9.30, 10 o'clock. I would say three, maybe four times up between Monday and Friday. You're rushing food afterwards. You've then got to do homework when you get back in. So we, we could be doing homework till half nine, 10 o'clock at night, really, with the kids. Here's another parent, Manchester City and England winger, Trevor Sinclair. 
there's a lot of things like when you talk about, you know, the relationship between me and my boys in football, I didn't want that extra pressure and that extra burden on my kids and expectancy. I've been able to stay out of the way and let them get on with their journey because it's not my journey. But when you see parents and kids and young players fall out, yeah, that's quite frustrating to see because it's almost like the parents judging the kid as a failure when, you know, maybe it was never meant to be. There's also the clubs and the people who work in and around the academies who are an integral part of a player's football academy experience. Here's Les Ferdinand, director of football at Queen's Park Rangers. I know the fight is hard. We're here to help every step of the way. You know, we've had our careers. We don't need to be doing this, but we do because we want to. And so we don't want any one of you to fail. We, all, we want you to succeed. And even if you don't succeed, we want you to succeed somewhere else. So our job is to, to try and turn you into professional footballers and giving them that understanding, that's our role and that's what we want for them. First and foremost, can you play for QPR? If not, doesn't mean you're not going to be a yeah. professional footballer. This is It Was All A Dream, the Football Academy journey. The problem is that football, by its very nature, is insanely competitive and it's almost too willing to actually sell what is, in reality, a near impossible dream. Guys, just, just stop, stop, stop. Hold on a minute. This is an important story we're just about to tell. Um, some of it is my journey. Some of it is my son's journey. Some of it is other parents and players that are trying to believe in the dream. So there may be times when I get emotional. There may be times when I stop and pause to think about some of the things that have happened to the people that, that will be describing their experiences in this documentary. But it's all to create the bigger picture of this footballing journey. And for me, that's massively important. You can carry on now. I'm Troy Townsend. You might know me from my anti-discrimination work with Kick It Out. And some of you might know that my son is Everton and England international, Andros Townsend. Here's Townsend. Going to go through the middle this time. Go around! Oh, that is outstanding! An absolute stunner from Andros Townsend! It's well to find Andros Townsend. And Townsend scores from space. Oh. And that's a fantastic finish by Andros Townsend. He's been so good for Royal Hodgson's England. But before all that, I was a young footballer with a dream. I was a forward, a captain, a leader of my youth teams. I was told and truly believed that I was destined for the top of the game. When I was released by Millwall and then Crystal Palace as a teenager in the late 70s, my whole world shattered. Football was the only thing that I ever loved. And when that was taken away from me, I felt totally empty and a failure a feeling I admit I carry with me to this day. I hadn't done well in school and my home life was really difficult, with a mother whose mental well-being was increasingly deteriorating and an absent father. There was no talk about mental or emotional support back in the day and I filled the hole that football had left inside me with negative life choices. As I told my son, Andros. Me and Andros don't, we'd never really spoken about this even when he was young, did we? Um... I was. I don't I, think. No, I was in an environment. Yeah. I was in an environment from 14 um, at Millwall and then at Crystal Palace with all the noises that I'm going to make it, going to make it, going to make it. You know, the school teachers, your coaches, your district manager, all that stuff. But after playing for Millwall and scoring on my debut and lining up next to Teddy Sheringham and stuff, I call myself a failure because as far as I was concerned, I was as good as those guys. Jimmy Carter at Arsenal, Martin Hayes at Arsenal, Michael Jilks. They're all part of the teams that I grew up with. We played for a Sunday league club. But ultimately, once Crystal Palace released me, I, I deemed myself as a failure. It was the only thing that I ever wanted to do. 
Thankfully, I was able to find a new purpose and calling in my life, though I know some have not been as lucky as I have. And as someone who had a hard time in the youth system and saw the challenges faced by Andros and my other sons, Curtis and Tashon, as they pursued playing careers, I'm determined to ensure that we have a system that offers greater support to my grandkids should they decide to take up the game. Rather than the myth of being spotted in your local park, joining a club and then running out a few years later for your first team debut, the path to making it as a professional is long and complex. So how does the academy system actually work? Simon Ord, Head of Education and Welfare at Derby County, talked me through the setup at his club, which is typical of a high-end academy in England. Derby's a Cat 1 academy, so we're, we're blessed with, you know, pretty good facilities. The training ground is a shared facility, so we've got first team and first team staff and all the academy on the same place. That gives us, obviously, certain opportunities, certain advantages in terms of access to training and all the rest of it. And we're very, very lucky with that. You know, there's no doubt about it, I, I, you know. So, you know, you come into a fantastic training ground every day. That's all well and good. You know, you can have the best facilities in the world, but it's about the people that are in the building, which are which are the key thing. So you have a, a, a you know, a multidiscipline sort of approach to this. So you've got... You've got, obviously, the academy manager, academy director. You have a head of operations. You have departmental heads, you know, myself, uh, head of sports science. You've got head of physiotherapy. And all these people on a daily basis, I mean, we start each day with what we call a bird table meeting, whereby each head of department is in a room and we just sort of write what's the day look like, who's doing what, you know. And, you know, your little things like, you know, the transport manager's in there and sort of if, if a session's running late, how can that have a ripple effect on him for later in the day? So it's just sort of making sure that there's open communication and everybody knows what everybody's doing. The reason for that, you know, the, the, the lads the lads themselves are the centre of this, really, because we are all there to make them better. And whether that's better on the football field or just being better people, you know, giving those them their opportunity. So they follow... Basically, a timetable which is not unlike a school timetable. They come in on a Monday. They've got a weekly schedule. It gets set out on a Friday. Within their working day, they'll usually they will have two training sessions a day. They'll have an education session a day. They'll have an analysis session a day. You know, they'll have a gym session a day. And they're full on. They come in and from nine o'clock till four thirty-five o'clock, they're full on. And I, you know, that 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 in itself puts a little bit of pressure on. You know, we've got we've got all these lads, and I've got a new group starting. You know, they've been playing football for fun as a schoolboy, 15, 16. Suddenly, they get a scholarship, but then they come into the world at work, and those kids for the first six weeks are like rabbits in the headlights. So what we've got to make sure is that through a proper induction process and you know forming relationships with them really is the key is that to to put them at ease, but also. And this is what I've learned, Troy, in terms of the elite sort of end of the sort of sport they're in is a very brutal business. And, you know, their work each day has to be of the highest possible standards. Now, you know, as well as I do, working with young people, it's not always like that. And this is where, you know, whether you're a mentor or an advisor, this is where you guide, cajole and try and sort of show them, you know, I look at it now, we've become, because of the governance, because of Ofsted and all the inspection, the audits, we do, we are in fact like a school. We, we, the governance that we sort of live by, we're almost like a, a football school. 
when it comes to the women's game, things are slightly different. The Football Association's Women's Super League Academy manager, Tony Fretwell, explains the pathway that girls take. We have the Barclays FAWSL Academy and we currently have 15 academies which are in the WSL clubs and we have three other clubs who were previously um, Super League clubs and were relegated to Championship and in the case of Ipswich Town that was a historic regional academy that was in the East region that was incorporated within it. It's a dual career system so each of the academies has relationships with HE and FE that combines education throughout and is part of their performance services network through the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, which is a, a project funded by Sport England. And that is our support network, whereby performance services are brought into the academies from the universities, but also it, it builds that connection to the university around career, higher education, uh, and of course, research. That brings together a circa, there's some flexibility and fluctuation with it, but circa a 12 hour per week football program it's more hours in some clubs, but it depends on the, the makeup of the player's education. There's a mental health program within that and a player care program, which is delivered via the Diploma in Sporting Excellence, the DICE program, which is done in partnership with Loughborough College. And we are three and a half years into that. How does the FA then define player care at youth level for it within the women's and girls game? Well, player care is really what we do about duty of care. And we break duty of care into two parts. So we've got the legal duty of care, which is the health and safety procedures, clear guidance about what reasonable steps should be taken to reduce hazards related to activities, substances, situations. Um, and then we've got the moral duty of care, which is the responsibility for safety and welfare. So members of staff have got a responsibility for those uh, young people in their care and of course the other staff within the environment. So it breaks down into those those two parts and the player care program and the criteria are focused on addressing those two areas first because unless those two areas are sufficiently provided for then nothing else should really proceed. We know how things should ideally work but what really goes down in practice? The problem is that football, by its very nature, is insanely competitive and it's almost too willing to actually sell what is, in reality, a near impossible dream. Mike Calvin is a journalist who's written many best-selling sports books, including No Hunger in Paradise, which focuses on youth football, a subject that's close to home. I had experience of the academy system with my son, personally, who... Uh, spent six years within it. I thought the standard of coaching was poor. The almost the politicisation of development within the club structure didn't really strike the right chord. I, you know, I was fortunate because I've been around the game for you know a gazillion years, uh, so I understand its nuances and its faults. You know, as much as I understand you know what it can give you. But others, parents who are brought into that structure, which is pressurised, probably by by definition, if you want to achieve something, you, there is pressure applied. But also, you know, their ambition sometimes, they, they struggle sometimes to, to contain their own ambition for their kids. The problem is that kids are drawn into a process when, by definition, you know, they're, they're, they're not formed physically and or mentally. Certain aspects 
of youth development are almost the, the, the sin that dare not speak its name. People were hesitant about speaking on the record. Coaches, parents. There is this culture within certain academies where you know they expect almost unquestioning allegiance. Parents who speak up for their kids, you know, they tend to be categorised as, as troublemakers when they're just following parental instincts. Balanced against that, I know that there has to be a professional detachment from coaches because they do make very hard, very life-defining decisions on some kids. One person at the forefront of making those kinds of decisions is Chris Ramsey, head of coaching at Queen's Park Rangers. I met with Ramsey to ask how QPR seeks to both develop and support the youngsters who come into their academy. I think what we've tried to do here is we try and implement a, a psychology programme, which is not just that they have a crutch, but have someone to help them with that transition from school, which I think is the biggest one, from school to full time. So from July to Christmas, we really still treat them as schoolboys because they don't get a big summer break. Mm -hmm. They usually finish their exams and they're in within a week. So the transition uh, emotionally is probably the biggest one you're gonna have. And then the second biggest one will be in the under 19s year. But what we look for is, is obviously their, their footballing ability first and, and, and foremost. And then if we can help them emotionally or help them to navigate the, the environment, that's, that's our biggest task which in the past hasn't been most, most of the time when you go in. When I was an apprentice, you go in and they just treat you like, like a pro mm. straight off the bat. So we've realised that that isn't, that isn't the best way to get the best out of, out of the players because you break them so early. Ramsey was part of the academy coaching team at Spurs that helped bring through my son Andros and a clutch of talented young players including internationals Harry Winks, Ryan Mason and the England captain Harry Kane. It's something he feels really proud of and he retains a similar philosophy in his work at QPR. Obviously it was huge for, for, for the whole academy at the time, you know, because there was some really good people that worked there, like Alex Inglethorpe, obviously Tim, Tim Sherwood and Les Ferdinand and John McDermott were massive parts of it. And uh, I think looking at it as, as working as a collective to get, them, to get the, the players to where they eventually ended up was, was enormous because there were so many as well, you know, it's, it's very difficult to get one in, mm. in, in a team that should normally be in the top four, four five or six. So for me, it was, it was a massive achievement and, and, and uh, the fact that a philosophy that was put in place that took, you know, the best part of 10 to 12 years. But in the end, you're not, your job is, is not to be judged on how many under 16 games you, you win. Your job is to be judged on how many become scholars. And then when, as a pro, how many get to get to the development squad or the reserves or whatever it is, and then how many get in the first team. And we know that statistically, I, was, I saw something on the BBC website the other day and it was saying that 0.012% out of 1.5 million make it. So the bigger the club, the less likely you're going to make it at that club. You might not go out the game, but to make it at that club, it's very, very difficult. It was all a dream. That figure of just 1% success rate for young players is held up as a stat, showing how tough it is to make a career in professional football. What is interesting is that not all of the game's authorities keep accurate records of how many young players 
from the various age groups are coming in and out of club academies each season. The LFE, which is part of the English Football League, can only assert accurate numbers of those players actually to clubs between 16 and 18 years of age. The EFL does not extract and analyse the data of 8 to 16 year olds. This seems to point to a basic lack of oversight of the system in England, which I feel is a massive issue in the game. Neil Saunders is the Director of Football at the Premier League. He oversees the work in youth development across Premier League academies. So each season we will be tracking all of the players that, that enter, that are in the system and, and exit the system. We have a comprehensive registration system, primarily really for safeguarding reasons, knowing that every player that is engaging with our academies are, are registered and able to, to do so. I think we do have an accurate picture of the records, you know, collectively across all of the different age groups. One of the things we're, we're doing at the moment, I said we're in the 10th season of EPPP, and to try to accurately determine the level of success of the system, it's important that we use some of the, some data to, to report back on that, and that's a process that we're going through at the moment. So in the coming months, we'll, we'll be able to look at that, that data in more detail with our club to try to learn lessons from it, understand what it's telling us and how how we might go about improving the system going forward to ensure that it's fit for purpose for, for the next 10 years. For young boys and girls across the country, being scouted and signed by a club is a dream come true. It certainly was for me. I can remember the rush of excitement when Mill signed me at 14 like it was yesterday. Keep listening to find out what it's like to navigate the career before a career as kids as young as seven and eight now enter the football academy system. This is It Was All A Dream, The Football Academy Journey. It, 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 it was all a dream. Welcome back to It Was All A Dream, The Football Academy Journey. A look at pathways through the football academy system in England. Being selected to train with a pro club is the stuff dreams are made of. An early tentative step on the road to becoming a professional footballer. Marcus Gow, the former Wimbledon and Jamaican World Cup winger, fondly reminisces about his first football memories. From the age of five, that was clear cut. But my mum might still have the book where it, the school asked me a question, what would you like to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a footballer. So very early age, I can sort of see my pathway. Swansea City cult hero, Lee Trundle. It was just me enjoying being with a football. You know, I enjoyed having it with me, keeping it up, trying new things. And I just think, you know, watching bits on the on the TV, if you seen a player do something, I'd go out in the back garden and I'd try and copy that until until I'd done it. And I think that was something that was with me. When I put my mind to doing something like that or to trying a new trick, I would keep going and going until I mastered it. So I think that was something where I just took it upon myself. But there was no one that ever showed me or technically showed me how to move with a ball. It was just something that that come naturally when I played. Here's former England international Anita Asante. I just always wanted to, you know, kick around the ball and from a really young age in the house, you know, five, six, kicking around the house and anything that I could, you know, kick basically, you know, rolled up sock or whatever I was doing. So I think that's where it began. But obviously when you meet other kids, you know, the easiest thing to grab is a ball and all of a sudden you've got mates as well and it's a social activity. Les Ferdinand, England and Newcastle United legend. I love playing football but at no stage in my mind as a kid did I ever think I could be a professional footballer. 
there weren't people on the TV at that time that I could relate yeah. to, that I could see, that I could say, oh yeah, I, could, I want to be like him. Um, so it wasn't probably till later on, um, as I got into my teenage years, that um, I started to, to, you know, I went into non-league football and stuff like that. But um, yeah, certainly as a kid, I never thought about being a professional footballer. Stephen Corker of Gaziantep FK shares his childhood footballing memories. My first ever session, I won player of the tournament or player of the day, whatever it was, and just got such a buzz from it. I just I, I sort of fell in love with it then and there. Like, you know, then went on to Sunday League and school football, county football, etc., etc., all the way up until I eventually got, got into an academy. As well as the dream for the youngsters themselves, families may see their son or daughter making it as a promise of a golden ticket to a life of luxury. I lacked the support of my parents on my journey in youth football, something which, looking back now, I honestly feel was the difference between me turning pro or not. The truth is that family support and sacrifice is key when it comes to making it in the game with kids as young as seven or eight years old feeling the pressure of every match being the next stage in their career. Crystal Palace midfielder Eberichi Eze is recognised as one of the most talented young players in England. It's Eze. Oh, it's a brilliant goal. His first for Crystal Palace. A magnificent free kick. That was sensational. He acknowledges the impact his desire to become a professional footballer had on his childhood and the lives of his family, as his mum ferried him from South London to Essex for training as a teenager. That career before the career, that one's funny because you don't realise what you're doing. You're starting to understand the discipline that it takes to get the career that you want, but ultimately you don't fully, fully, fully deep it. So it's like, you're making sacrifices from like 12, you know? <laughs> sacrifices that no one's making in your age group. They're going to the parties, they're going out with their friends, they're doing this, they're chilling do you out. Know what, Ed, do you realise it's a sacrifice? That, sorry to cut in, but do you realise mm. it's a sacrifice at the time? I'm saying like, minimal, minimally you, you, you realise it. If you're clued up at that age, then maybe you might understand it because of the influences around you, like your, the support system that you got. But really, you're just thinking, I can't, I can't actually go to that party because I've got a game for Arsenal. Well, I've got a game for this team or whatever. Like, I would love to go to the party, but I fully can't go because I've got this commitment. And it automatically just starts to, like, put into perspective what's the priority here. Party's here. I've got to go to the game. And that's it. You don't even have the choice. You try your best to finish the match quickly, speed home, to try and get to the party. You ain't making it. You're not making it. It's done. You already made, you made your bed. You made your bed. That's it. Which is, it's funny, man. Eight, nine, ten, you're talking about them type of sacrifices. It's just man, these types of conversations, people outside of football can't fully, fully grasp it. They cannot. Like, they'll talk about footballers and the Prem and all the types of stuff. The reason why these people are there, these sacrifices that you didn't even know were being made. Like, you couldn't even comprehend at the age of eight that a man couldn't go to a party because he had football. You can't even... You can't even like gauge that. And that's the reason why he's there. It's not because he's just got more talent than you, but he was doing the same things that you were doing. He just luckily got there. Nah, he made some serious, not just him, but his family, Thank all the people around him, all, all, all of these things played a huge part. You can't talk to a 12 year old and say, listen, try this, go to school, finish school. You haven't got time to chill and talk with your friends after school. You got to sprint home, 
Your mum's got your kit in the car ready. You're changing in the car, driving, driving to South End, getting there for seven, <laughs> for seven o'clock, seven o'clock, finishing and driving home. Your mum is like waiting in the car for you to finish. And then you got to get home and do your homework. Late night homework sessions are something that Suzanne Tobin knows all about from supporting her teenage son through the academy system. He got signed, obviously, at 13 mm. by the pro club. He went there when he was... he just started secondary school. He went there for his trial. So he had, basically, an hour to school in the morning. He had an hour when he got back. And then we obviously had the, you know, the travel, you know, to the ground, which was then, what, up to an hour there and an hour back. He was exhausted. You know, that is a lot for an 11-year-old boy to kind of take on. They've just started secondary school and then they've got that as well. And I think it was it was just too much. You know, it's a, it's a lot when they're having to do that. What is it, like a, probably at least three times a week and, you know, weekends as well. So it just, it wasn't the right timing. He took a year out. He carried on playing with his local team and then he went back again and then he was just flying. So your son has now just signed professional forms with a Premier League club. How proud are you? And what does it mean for the next stage of his development? Yeah, immensely proud. I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But I look at it and I think, you know what, he deserves it. He really does deserve it because he just, he just loves playing football. And he's just worked, you know, so hard, like for all of these years and you know it's a dream come true for any boy isn't it really when my son andros was rewarded with a professional contract at tottenham as a family there wasn't a celebration many would expect andros um the feeling of knowing or being told you're getting a professional contract in an industry where so many don't uh you work your socks off from the age of whenever you first joined your Sunday League Club, Ridgeway, which I think was seven, Mm. wasn't it? Seven, eight. And then you're told, here you go, we're signing you, you're a professional footballer. Can you remember that feeling? You know what? I'm probably going to ruin your question because it wasn't really a a big milestone for me. I don't want to be big-headed, but that was just the next progression. Um, Milestones for me, obviously, first-team appearances, first-team goals and what have you. Getting a pro was just a stepping stone onto what I wanted to do next. So yes, it was nice to have it. It was nice to have some more money in the bank account, but it wasn't really a milestone that I, I don't even remember when I was told that I was given a pro contract because it just wasn't part of my mentality. It was, there was a bigger goal than just receiving a professional contract. Remember what our reaction was like? Mum, dad, brothers. I don't remember. I don't even, I don't remember the day. I don't remember being told. No. Uh, to be fair, <laughs> I, I actually get what you're saying because I think we were all very similar. It was the next stage of a journey. So I'm not shocked at what you're saying because I don't think we might, I don't know, I think we might have got a Chinese that night. I can't remember, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't think it was anything quite significant as such because there was another stage to go, wasn't there? Listening back, I fully understand what Andros was saying. He was on the first step of a very, very long journey and didn't want to celebrate too much because he knew that there was going to be many, many more challenges on the way. 
And whilst he and we as a family appreciated that he was in a very small percentage of players who had got this far, we also realised that he wanted to be a professional footballer and was going to continue to dedicate his life to being that. Not everybody is convinced that the academy system has got the balance right. Here's all for Mike Calvin. In many ways, the ills of the senior game are seeping into the junior process. Almost the desperation for talent and not to miss out on that talent, which means that there's a race to the bottom in youth development. You know, the, one of the things that I actually was you know, fundamentally shocked by was the fact that the lad, well, he's not a lad, he's a, he's a child. He'd been, he'd been scouted at the age of three. If you do that, you strip away the innocence of childhood where you've got a nine-year-old who essentially is told, look, this is your job now. Now, they're kids. They should be climbing trees, you know, or whatever they do. Now, I know we, we live at an age where essentially they're playing Call of Duty in, in front of their, their PCs, but... You know, what we've done, what football is in danger of doing, what it actually probably has done is commoditize childhood. And that is, that's pregnant with so many potential problems that it's sometimes difficult to know where to begin. I asked QPR's Chris Ramsey about the importance of the relationship between the coach, the player and the parent. I think to try to get that player as, to reach the dream that they're, that they're trying to achieve, that's your responsibility. So the first thing I think is, depending on where they are on the development pyramid, is first to respect the player. That, that's first and foremost. Equally to keep them safe and then obviously to, to help them to maximise their potential. That's it for me. What about a parent? Parent? Yeah. To a parent, firstly, I think uh, you're talking about working in an academy. Yeah. I think firstly, the responsibility of a coach is to make sure that, that, that their child is safe. That's the first thing for me, uh, physically and emotionally. And then obviously for the parent to, to know that you're trying your best to make that, that child the best that they can be. My family background was unconventional. I'd effectively been left to my own devices from a young age. That parental support wasn't there at all. But I remember the joy I felt when I started training with Millwall. And while I wasn't destined to make it as a player myself, I was bursting with pride when my sons Curtis, Tashon and Andros entered the academy system. I liked watching my kids play football. I liked, I liked Nicole, my first girl, she played football, you know, and then went into dancing. So as long as that, you know, sport was everything to me. So they were doing something they loved. I wasn't going to doubt, as a family, we weren't going to douse on that. Do you know what I mean? So... Seeing Tash, first of all, play, seeing Kurt play, you know, seeing Tash play, seeing Andros play, it just brings joy, you know, because they played with a certain kind of, particularly Andros, played with a certain kind of elegance as well, you know. And, and so when Tash is now struggling because he's having to spend a year out, Andros is now developing. And no, it, you know, it was to make sure that one, they just had the support. The, the only thing I lacked was the support. Um, I didn't lack in ability, I didn't lack in, in, in awareness and understanding of the game. So the only thing I lacked was support. So the only thing we ever wanted to make sure was that they knew that as parents we'd take them anywhere and they had the support for the good days, the bad days and the indifferent days. And, and that was it. I would never, you know, I've got grandchildren now, if the little one, little boy, little girls, whatever they want to get into, we, you know, as, as family, we're just there. It, it's everything that I didn't have.
And I suppose it's molded the experience of being a parent and a grandparent even more is that you just want to give them everything, don't you? But everything is not just, you know, gold. Everything is is wisdom, it's knowledge, it, 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 it's protection. It's, you know, I, the things that I never, ever had. And uh, listen, whatever it is, the journey's a great one. Andros went into an academy at eight. If we're doing it again, would I want him in an academy really at eight years of age? You know, he, he got released by Arsenal year, a year later. As far as they were concerned, he was too small. Luckily, I'm a football man, so I think that's a load of absolute, you know what I mean? But if I was released at eight, I don't know what I would have fell into. But he was released at eight. We went back to the Sunday club. Within weeks, he's he's at Spurs. The journey through the football academy system, if it ever reaches the end goal, is a long and pressured one. One of my sons made it. The other two didn't. Most children will not. And with this stat of only 1% of youth footballers making it to the top of the game, this only backs up the difficulty many have of achieving their goal. This is It Was All A Dream, the Football Academy journey. It was all a dream. It was all a dream. Welcome back to It Was All A Dream, the Football Academy journey an inside view of the ups and downs of young people's experiences through the English academy system. We're making sacrifices from like 12, you know, <laughs> sacrifices that no one's making in your age group. For those players that make it to the top, the riches are life-changing for them and their families. However, it is estimated that of the one and a half million boys who play organised youth football in the Premier League alone, only 0.01% will become professionals. Even amongst those who gain a scholarship at 16, the vast majority won't play in the top tier. And no matter which level they eventually end up at, if young boys and girls want to make it as a professional, then they're going to have to devote their entire lives to it, placing football ahead of schoolwork, fun and friendships. If a player is really good or lucky, they might make their debut at 18 but they'll have already spent 10 years in academy setups up to this point. An unseen journey at the most precious of ages. Manisha Taylor is assistant head coach at QPR, the first woman and first person of South Asian descent to hold such a role in the English game. When they come to you in this environment, when I say they, I mean the, the young players, they come in with they're all coming with a dream. As much as we know that the statistics really small and we, we realise that hardly any of them are going to make it. But nonetheless, they, they're still coming to you with a desire and a dream. And our job is to make sure we help them get better. But our job is also to ensure that we help prepare them for the adversities. Part of that preparation is around resilience, uh, finding solutions, problem solving, so that when they eventually move on, they not only develop as footballers, you know, they develop as people, but also they're adaptable because that's another part of, say, our club focus, that adaptability isn't just about being able to play in different systems and different shapes. Adaptability is about saying that I, I am able to, to, to leave this professional environment and go off and do whatever it is that, that I wish to do. And I think that fundamentally is, is really important. I asked my son Andros, who's now at Everton, about his awareness of the sacrifices being made by the family when he was a young academy player. 
Andros, two other brothers, two other sisters, brothers wanting to play, sisters wanting to dance. Did you really appreciate the sacrifices that would have been made? Uh, probably not. Because um, obviously I was, like, like I spoke about, I was going to Arsenal. Then I had trials at Chelsea Palace, all the other London clubs, Spurs two times a week, Paul Elliott Football Academy as well in in Dartford in South London. So that's probably a lot of sacrifice, a lot of time in the car, which you probably don't appreciate as a kid. But then as you get older, you realise that without this sacrifice, you probably wouldn't be sitting where you are. I'm not sure we fully appreciated as a family how much sacrifice we did make to make sure Andrus's journey was as thorough um, as it was. The girls used to miss some of their dance classes, so that obviously they had to go to watch Andrus play football um, whilst I was with our other son. We never really talked about it, we never really explained the process, but as a family we just did it. And what I'm proud of is that we continue to do it to this very day, so we follow him up and down the country, watch all his games. The girls are invested in his football as much as what we are as parents and his other brothers are as well. So ultimately, the sacrifices are for the end goal of being able to call yourself a professional footballer and all the rewards that come with that as well. Defender Anita Asante has won 71 England caps after coming through the ranks at Arsenal. I think it's important for, for parents or carers or guardians who take their young children to football, a football club, whether it be a local one, a big one, that they sometimes, you, that you're not just taking a child there because it's the team you support or it's your dream, you know, because you could, you, they could test it out. It might not work out for them. The environment might not suit them, but that they're also willing to go, okay, that's fine. Let's try another club. You know, it's about finding the right environment for your child and also the right dynamic as parents because you're just as involved in terms of showing up every day watching building a rapport with the coaches or coaching staff and you want to know that you trust your kid in those hands that they they're there to develop them so I think it's important for parents as well to have conversations with coaches and say you know what what is the expectations for the kids when they arrive here and how do you feel that you can impact their playing or whatever you know, because that's how you also can hold them to account as well, you know, because a lot of the pressure and expectations on the players and the children often, but, and just to be supportive, you know, they, they're there to encourage their children to not expect that they're the finished article at seven or 11 years old. <laughs> and there's a long road ahead to, to becoming, you know, their future idols. Imagine being in a super competitive environment of academy football. A space in which performance has to be maximised at all times and any drop-off in standards could see you discarded. Many of you listening will work in stressful environments with pressures to meet targets and deadlines. But imagine doing this at 14, 12, 10 years of age. In other words, when you were a child, it can be a tough place to survive, let alone thrive. Ali Al-Hamadi is a 19-year-old English-Iraqi forward who came through the ranks at Swansea City. And he's one of the few young players who's spoken on the record about the pressures of trying to make it as a professional. I understand that you recently described football as well, uh, youth football as ruthless and relentless. Tell me a little bit more about that and why you feel it's this way. I think, I think it has to be this way. 
because that's how you weed out the ones who are able and the ones who aren't able. And, and at the end of the day, the rewards you get from football are, are life-changing. For, from, for someone, especially like me, for, if I'm able to buy my mum and dad a house and, and secure my family for the rest of their lives, that, that's that's not going to come at, a, at an easy cost. And, and I'm well aware of that. So again, I'm fully accepting of all, all the downs and the setbacks that come with football and, and the business of it and, and the politics and all that stuff. But at the same time, there's not there's players who aren't aware of that. So even though I am aware of that, there's players who you you got to remember, I'm, I'm 19 years of age. So there's players who are 19, 18, 17, who they, they don't understand any of that. They're just playing football because they love playing football. So it's really ruthless in a way that you can never really explain that to someone who doesn't understand it. So then players will just get shafted and we'll have to deal with the mental consequences of that, of, of basically their dreams being shattered or their dreams being tough by somebody who doesn't think they're good enough. You've got your Sancho's and your Rashford's and your Foden's who who are who you look at and think, you know, wow, these are 18, 19 and, and they're already playing at the top, top stage. But they're the minority. And for, I'd say for the rest of us, not the rest of us, because again, I, I have that confidence myself that I'm, I'm able to reach those heights. I'll never let anyone tell me any difference because if you if you don't believe that, then, then no one else is going to believe that. But it takes longer for, for players other players maybe than others so I understand that this is a journey and again I understand that but there's obviously thousands of, and millions of players out there who, who maybe don't understand that and they want to reap the rewards as soon as possible and that, that's when you see players dropping off and losing the drive and losing the, the desire to go and make it so the best way I had to say is it's, be, it's very hard but it's a process that's not going to it's not going to work overnight I think it's just trusting your own journey really like everyone's journey is different and it's a cliche thing to say, but but it's I think it's so true. Like you've got to trust your own journey, and, and again, if if you're really, if you really believe that you're gonna reach where you wanna reach, you gotta accept that this is where I'm meant to be right now, and I I gotta find a way through it. It was really refreshing to hear a young player like Ali speak with such positive self awareness of the journey he was on to try and make an impact in the game he loves. This broader way of thinking is something that the game is seeking to encourage in academy players to help equip them with the resilience they need as they move through life, whether they stay inside or outside the game. Yes, it's important that we recognise there will be highs and lows. I think the important part is that we recognise how you deal with those. You know, are you equipped with that? So yes, we need to be honest that there is a fallout rate, fine. But I don't think you I don't think that's the best way to start a conversation with a young person about why they should do something or why it might be important to invest, invest in themselves, their personal development, their acquisition of life skills. Dan Jolly works for League Football Education, which is tasked with helping develop the learning of apprentices in the Football League. He believes that it's vital that young players see the value in developing whole identities, which are not solely focused around seeing themselves only as footballers. It's really about understanding that there is a performance journey that you're going on and that having a wider understanding of yourself, the ability to see yourself as more than a footballer, actually prepares you better for any of those highs and lows as you're going. So doing things that are outside of football, actually counterintuitively, actually, to me, has, has a really big impact on, on the performance journey. You know, and, and it's not about saying we're taking away that performance element, you know, speak to any 16 year old apprentice footballer and, you know, the first thing they want to talk about is, well, 
I want to be a professional footballer. And when you start saying, well, what about doing some community work? And they say, well, well how's that getting me anywhere closer to my professional footballer? Well, okay, but what is it developing in you and for you that supports your development journey in football, but that also gives you a bit of a sense of well-being, gives you a bit of an understanding of yourself as more than a footballer and how that will help you when it comes to tough times and or that transition process. When I was a youth player, the notion that players should be prepared for the likelihood they wouldn't make it as a professional was unheard of. My coaches sought to guide my technical development as a footballer, but for my development as a person, there was nothing. I asked Andros if he felt like there was any thoughts of a plan B when he was in academy football. Obviously, we lived in the same household, Andros, but did you ever think about anything other than football? Did you think that you ever had a plan B at all? Was there anything that you felt, do you know what, if it doesn't work out here, I'm going to move on to something else? No, absolutely not. I think I was, I was, I focused at school until about year 10, when probably 14, 15, and that's when like, I switched off. I started obviously playing for, uh, got called up to the England youth team, the under 16s, had trials at the under 15s England. And I think that was the moment where I kind of just switched off from school, had no real plan B, and it was just full focus on football, which probably I was fortunate, but obviously there are many players who are not as fortunate as I was. Working with young people who happen to be talented footballers can offer great reward. First and foremost, though, academy coaches have great responsibility. Here's former England striker Les Ferdinand, now director of football at QPR. What is it that gives you most pleasure? Working with young people, working in that environment, the way that you have and obviously in your position now. Seeing them coming through, seeing them making it, seeing them understand what we're talking about. Not to just say, oh, I told you so, just to just to see them taking on board what you're, the, the, the knowledge that you're implanting. And, you know, the one thing we always say to them, look, we've been there, we've done it. I'm not going to tell you anything that's going to allow you to fail. We want you to be successful and then getting to grips with that. And, you know, I think football's changed from when, when I was playing and when I was coming through. Um, you know, you talked about my, you talk about my parents and mm. my parents knew where I was and they were happy knowing where I was. Um, you go to any youth team game now, and unfortunately, there's a lot of parents yeah. standing around the field because they're looking at their child as, this is my golden nugget, yeah? Do you know what I mean? And so it's a very, very different concept. And there's a lot of pressure on the young young players today to make it as professional footballers. Let's talk about that parental pressure then, that golden nugget and the pressure on young players today. How do you, this club, balance that? Or how have you in the past as well? I think the, the, the only way you balance it is, it, balance it is to be honest. And what we what we have here is a, an honest policy, whether we're talking to the parents, whether we're talking to the kids, because unfortunately, in the past, what we used to have is um, we we had some coaches that were saying to to parents, "Oh, your, your son's doing really well, and he's doing," well. and all of a sudden he's not getting a contract. So, hang on, man, you were saying he was doing really well, and now you're saying to me he's not getting a contract. How does that work? Yeah. And and that was just a case of people trying to be nice, and you know, unfortunately, this yeah. is a bit of a cutthroat business. Yeah. And I think that the best policy is, is, is honesty. And I'd like to say that, you know, I, I think all my coaches now, when they talk to parents, they give them an honest assessment of where they, their children, whether the parents like it or not. That fallout rate, the percentages of those taken on and, and you know, that apply themselves at whatever level, like you've mm. said. But what about the fallout rate? What about the, those that don't make it? 
do you think that football deals with that part of it? And I'll say football in general. Yeah. That part of it, well, it's it's always a it's always a tough question. I always find it hard because I say any other industry in the world um, where people go to work and they don't quite fulfil their potential in that job, they're allowed to let go. Yeah. And nothing's put in place. Nothing's put in place for them. But because there's so much money involved in football and people have this ideal that my son's going to be a professional footballer, um, things have to be put in place. Yes, you know, we, 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 we say to kids, we make sure that kids go to college, we make sure that kids go to school, we make sure that education's a major part of what we do at this football club. And like a lot of the other football clubs around the country, they do most, if not every football club, has its education package to what yeah. they do. The kids don't, are not not really interested in that because they think they're going to become professional footballers. So it's not that the football club hasn't put things in place. People just haven't taken it on board because they want to be professional footballers. But as you said, the fallout rate is such that people then turn around and say, well, my son left there and it was, it was shabby the way they got rid of him. They didn't do this and they didn't do that. And it's, it's an unfortunate part of football. The retain and release system through which young players are told if they're able to continue pursuing their dreams at a club or will be let go can be very brutal. I know it was for me when I was let go at 15 years of age. The feeling of failure is something I still carry with me. And while there have been attempts to improve things for young players, questions about if current support structures are truly fit for purpose are warranted, especially for those deemed not good enough. It was one of those where, you know, you're quite disappointed. You've been there for 10 years that you can just get let out of the door. You know, you're not expecting special treatment. You're just expecting some sort of direction and guidance, especially as a young person like that um, in any career, you know. That's what was lacking massively. We've seen Jordan cry. We've seen Ryan cry. I've seen my wife cry. I've even cried. Now, this is football, Troy. This is football. If I... Had I known that this is the environment that I'm putting him into, he wouldn't have gone anywhere near it. I was half a step away from throwing myself in front of a train. I was, and the only reason I didn't was my nephew had just been born and I hadn't had a chance to properly meet him. But I was, I was in depression and I was ridiculously suicidal um, because I was no longer going to be a footballer and there was nothing for me. There was nothing for me. Next time on It Was All A Dream, the Football Academy journey, we'll explore the dark side of academy football and hear firsthand from players and their families about what it's like when the pot at the end of the rainbow isn't filled with gold, but something far less savoury. Join me next time for It Was All A Dream, the Football Academy journey. If any of the issues discussed in this documentary have affected you, please call the Samaritans, day or night, for free on 116123 or go to samaritans.org. It was all a dream. The Football Academy Journey is an unedited production for the Wireless Group and supported by the Audio Content Fund.